This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 8th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Michael Minna about the role of the measles virus in increasing childhood mortality from other infectious diseases. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. What was the biggest pop music revolution of the last 50 years? Was it when the Beatles came on the scene in the 60s or hip-hop in the 90s? Rather than leaving the question to the subjectivity of human perception, researchers have turned to big data to analyze changing trends in melody, rhythm, and harmony through time. Reducing a deeply human experience to algorithms sounds like a daunting undertaking, Dave. Yeah, well, you know, when you think about it, actually, though, music is pretty mathematical. The things that differentiate one piece of music from another, things like rhythm, harmony, and melody, are all intrinsically mathematical. And for a long time, researchers have wondered, well, can we actually break music down to these components as a way of analyzing it, comparing it, and even charting its evolution over time. And how did they go about this, Dave? (laughs) Well, they went to the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, which is the American music industry's weekly list of popular singles. And this goes all the way back to the 1960s. And so for the past 50-odd years, the team analyzed some 17,000 songs. And this, as you can imagine, recovered a wide variety of genres, everything from rock to disco to rap. And what they found was that the algorithm they used could actually break down the genres of music much like human listeners. So it knew, for example, what was rap and hip-hop almost as well as a human being would categorize 
a particular genre of music. Interesting. So what were some of the biggest surprises that they found when looking at the data this way? Well, there's been a couple of criticism leveled at popular music. One is that it's very formulaic and homogenous. And the other is that it's had this very gradual evolution over time. But the researchers found that neither of those was the case. Instead, the researchers found that pop music is as diverse now as it has ever been. And even more significantly, instead of this gradual evolution, there's actually been several dramatic revolutions in pop music. The first was in 1964 during the rise of rock and soul music. Right. For example, the Kinks and the Supremes were shaking things up along with the Beatles in 1964. And then there was another revolution in 1983 with the rise of disco, new wave, and hard rock. Duran Duran and the police hit the charts back then. And then the most recent, and what the scientists say was the most transformative, actually started in 1991 with the explosion in rap and hip-hop. For example, Criss Cross with the hit Jump. I wonder what cultural phenomenon Big Data will take on next. <laughs> Our next story is about diamonds in the rough. There's an African plant called Pandanus candelabrum that has a strong penchant for growing on volcanic rocks above underground diamond deposits. How did researchers discover this special affinity, Dave? Well, scientists already knew that there are some plants that seem to grow over ore-bearing rocks. For example, there's a couple plants that grow over rocks that are associated with copper. And the reason this is is because if you've got a particular mineral or a gem that's growing that's under the soil, it can actually influence the composition of the soil. And there may only be some plants that are actually adapted to live on that type of soil. And now we might be seeing the most dramatic example of that. This happened in 2013 when the chief exploration officer of a diamond mining company in Liberia noticed that there was an unusual plant growing over one of the diamond deposits his company was excavating. This is a rare palm-like plant. You can actually see a picture of it on the site. And he noticed it wasn't just this site in Liberia, but he noticed the plant growing over other diamond deposits as well. So what's special about the soils above the diamonds that attracts this specific plant? Well, the diamonds are found in what are called kimberlite pipes, which are these columns of volcanic rock that extend hundreds of meters deep into the earth. And what's notable about these kimberlite soils is that they're rich in magnesium, potassium, and phosphorus. And this is sort of a unique mixture of nutrients that might only attract particular plants. And what this researcher says is he did not see this plant growing anywhere else. So it's possible it has adapted just for kimberlite soils. I imagine this will attract a lot of interest. 
But mineral extraction doesn't have the cleanest human rights or environmental record in Africa. If diamonds are discovered through surveying for these plants, will it be good for these nations? Well, a lot of these operations that the researchers are talking about tend to be these more boutique operations. And these are the type of operations that locals can be more involved in ostensibly. And they potentially offer a revenue source without damaging the environment. These soils that we're talking about are actually fairly nutrient-rich soils. So ostensibly, there's not a whole lot of damage to the environment. These diamond mines are actually also very narrow and vertical, which means they leave a smaller environmental footprint than perhaps some larger mining operations. Interesting. And in our final story today, in the United States, it's sort of expected that you'll crack a friendly smile under a variety of circumstances for photographs, when you shake someone's hand, or when you exchange pleasantries. But that's not necessarily the norm in all cultures. A new study looks at how smiling is influenced by a country's history of immigration, in this case, the United States, Japan, and France. Why did the researchers think smiling might be influenced by immigration history, Dave? Well, we already know that smiling tends to be influenced by what's called a country's emotion culture. These are the norms that influence how when people express themselves. So, for example, in Japan, subordinates will use smiles around their bosses to hide feelings of being upset, whereas that doesn't seem to happen in the U.S. But the researchers also wondered whether a country's history might play a role. And the reason is, is because if you can imagine a country that's been fairly homogenous for a long time, that culture will have been able to develop its own rules about when you smile and when you don't. And that would feed more into the emotion culture. But if you can imagine a country that has a lot of migrants early in its history and a lot of people that can't necessarily communicate in other ways, but can communicate with facial expressions, perhaps in those countries, facial expressions become much more important and potentially have a different meaning than they might have in other cultures. Okay, and how did they study these differences in smiling? Well, they used a metric that they call historical heterogeneity. And this is basically a figure that you can put on a country's migration pattern. So it gives a sense of how many people from how many other countries have contributed to that particular country's population. And so, for example, you look at a country like Canada, which has a large number of migrants in its past, that has a score of 63 versus China and Japan, which both have a score of one. And then the researchers compared those figures to surveys that had been done with people in some of those countries about under what circumstances would you smile, under what circumstances would you have other facial expressions. And what they found is that, especially when they compare people from the U.S., Japan, and France, the migration history of these countries really had a very strong influence on whether people used smile as a friendly gesture versus using a smile as sort of more of a way to fit into the social hierarchy. Interesting. And I understand that the researchers are also looking into using Google Glass style glasses to test some other questions about emotional expression. Well, yeah, one big question is, you know, countries aren't monoliths. And so the question is, do different regions of a country, for example, do different regions of the U.S. use smiles in different ways? And this would be one way of getting at that question. Interesting. Well, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about the origins of complex cellular life. Also a story about using a smartphone to detect a potentially lethal blood worm in Africa. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why a German neuroscientist has stopped his primate research. Also, why a U.S. House of Representatives hearing on politically driven science did not include any scientists. 
So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Suzanne. David Grimm is the editor for our daily online news site. I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog Science Insider at news.sciencemag.org. Next, in my parents' generation, most families could pretty much expect a visit from the highly contagious measles virus at some point. But since its introduction half a century ago, the measles vaccine has done much more than prevent the disease. In fact, reductions in childhood mortality since its introduction can't be fully explained by the vaccine's direct prevention of primary measles infections alone. Michael Minna investigates this mystery by examining the role of extended immune suppression by the measles virus this week in science. Measles has been known for a long time now to cause a significant immune suppression shortly following infection. But for many years, it's been thought to essentially last for one or two months, and then the infected individual is sort of in the clear. And what our work shows is that this immunosuppression or the immunologic effects of the infection itself may last considerably longer than that, perhaps extending to two to three years. So let's talk about the success of the measles vaccine after it was introduced 50 years ago. What have these benefits been, Michael? The direct benefits are that we have greatly decreased the virus throughout the general population. Now, measles is a pretty nasty virus to get. So kids who get it get high fevers, they get runny noses, irritated eyes, they get terrible rashes that sort of spread from their face and their neck down along their extremities and over their trunk. It can lead to a lot of more serious complications, including blindness and encephalitis or swelling of the brain diarrhea and dehydration, and then also respiratory infections. So those might be from the primary virus, but then there's also the immunologic sequelae of measles, which predispose individuals to lots of other secondary infections. So bacterial pneumonia and all kinds of bacterial diseases in particular, which can have much more devastating effects. So prior to the vaccination being produced and given out in mass, Nearly all children, as you say, were paid a visit by the measles virus. And so when you start adding up those numbers, it really led to a huge burden on the population in terms of morbidity and mortality and just overall disease. And so the vaccine has done a tremendous job. It's one of the best vaccines that we have at really reducing measles and in so doing, reducing all of these primary and secondary effects of the virus itself. Right. And in your paper, you state that the benefits of the vaccine can't be fully explained by the prevention of primary measles virus alone. Why not, Michael? So the measles virus itself doesn't have a huge case fatality rate, meaning that not large numbers of children are known to die from the viral infection itself. Now, there are a lot of secondary infections, as I mentioned, that also add to the high burden of disease and mortality following measles. But what we've seen since the administration of vaccines began in the 1960s in the U.S. and then have kind of spread throughout the world is we've seen very large reductions in overall mortality. And these reductions are at a scale that are really quite a bit larger than what can be explained by preventing the virus itself and even its secondary infections that are known to occur within that first month or two. And so it's really been a mystery as to why do we see such large reductions really on the order 
of about 50% reductions in all-cause childhood infectious disease mortality. <laughs> and we saw that in the United States. We see it when we're introducing vaccinations to new communities. In Western Africa, we see large reductions in overall mortality, and there's all sorts of hypotheses surrounding why it might be occurring. Perhaps the hypothesis that has garnered the most interest over the decades has been this idea that the vaccine may itself stimulate the immune response to sort of work harder and in so doing prevent lots of infectious diseases. But reconciling that with the long-term reductions that we see is difficult. Michael, like you mentioned before, it was previously known that measles infection suppresses the immune system for up to several months, making people susceptible to other infections. But your paper suggests that immunosuppression could last much longer. How did you come to this conclusion? A number of years ago, there was a study by one of our collaborators, Rick Deswart, who's one of the co-authors on this paper, and he showed that when you give measles to a monkey and you see this large reduction in immune cells, most of the cells that returned after that one or two months were specific to measles. And so it raised the question, well, what happened to the rest of the immunity that those animals previously had? And if this happens in humans, have the children then lost immunity against the plethora of other infectious diseases that they had previously acquired immune memory to, meaning that their bodies could produce antibodies against and essentially protect the child from. Is it possible that we've kind of deleted the immunity and we have to regain it? So what we did in this study was we took a population level look at an immunologic question. That is, does measles delete previously acquired immunity and you have to sort of gain it back afterwards? So we took population level data, meaning national level data, collected surrounding the decades of the introduction of measles vaccine in England and Wales, in the United States and in Denmark. And we looked at how does the overall incidence of measles correlate with the overall amount of deaths due to infectious diseases in those countries? And what we did then was look at just a basic correlation, meaning how associated are the two? Are they exactly associated or is there a weak correlation between them? And when we just took the raw data, we didn't see a very strong correlation, meaning that the amount of measles happening in one year doesn't exactly predict the amount of mortality that's happening in that year. So then we asked ourselves, well, if children after they get measles have to rebuild their immune response. It won't happen after a month. It won't happen after two months. They might have to be re-exposed to the whole plethora of infectious diseases that they were once introduced to as little babies, for example. And they might have to rebuild their immune response as though they were just born again. And so that might take a number of years, as we see with bacterial infections. Children will require a couple of years before the amount of bacterial infections start being decreased because they have gained immunity to them all. So we ended up taking a lagged approach, meaning we took the measles incidence data from, for example, 1965, and we said, okay, if this effect lasts for two years, then let's add up the number of measles cases from 1965 and 1964. And we added them up and saw, well, okay, how does that look? Now that for each data point, we have two years worth of measles cases. And we did that over and over until we found a maximal correlation, which turned out to be an incredibly strong correlation that occurred at around 28 months when we added up all of the measles cases for each year that had actually occurred over the previous two and a half years. That value then ended up correlating very strongly 
meaning that the lagged measles data that we derived over that two and a half year period could very well predict the amount of non-measles infectious disease mortality that was going to happen in each of those years. And then we did it for multiple countries and we always found the same thing, that that real peak correlation occurs when we make that lag, meaning the two and a half years required for immunity to return. The correlation was always strong enough at about two and a half years essentially giving strong evidence towards the idea that measles might deplete the immune response and it requires approximately two and a half years for your full immune response to be back and fully operational. And that's essentially how we were answering a immunologic question using population-level data with a lot of other checks within the work as well to make sure it wasn't spurious results that we were getting. So how do you explain the biology of this immune amnesia? I mean, how could getting measles make your immune system forget how to fight non-measles pathogens? That's a great question. And the answer is really quite simple. And that's that viruses love to live and kind of hijack the cells of the hosts in which they infect. In the case of measles, measles preferentially targets what we call memory cells. And these are cells that really store the immunologic memory for us to fight off infections that we have previously either been vaccinated to or that we've seen in the past. So when measles hijacks or gets into these cells, it uses a little receptor that we call CD150. And it actually binds to the cells and enters into them. And CD150 essentially decorates the outside of our memory cells. So it gives these viruses preferential entrance into our memory cells. And then the virus kind of goes to work and uses the cell to replicate. And then it kills the cell. So when measles gets into our body, it targets out our memory cells, it replicates, and then it kills off our memory cells. And in doing so, it essentially kills off a good portion, it turns out, of the immune memory that we've spent years building up. And so if an eight-year-old who has spent the first eight years of his life building this wonderful immune system with all of this memory, if he gets infected with measles, that measles virus might get into all of his memory immune cells and it will deplete them and kind of erase all of this wonderful immunologic development that has occurred in that child. And so then what happens is the child is sort of left without immune memory against those pathogens that he once had. And he has to essentially build back the immune memory again. We essentially show that this process might take as much as three years to kind of get re-exposed, during which that child, because he has to get re-exposed, if it's not re-exposure through a vaccine, but through infection itself, then he's also likely to get very sick from that infection as he's being re-exposed to sort of rebuild his immune response. It's the same reason why very little children and babies are at high risk of disease because they haven't built up their immune system yet and they're just getting exposed for the first time. And what does your paper suggest about the contribution of measles to overall childhood mortality, both back when measles was common in the developing world and also in developing countries today where measles still persists? This is an infection that used to infect nearly all children. And so what our paper shows is that measles in highly developed countries we're talking about, where infectious diseases are not particularly rampant, the virus itself, through these long-term immunologic effects, was actually leading to about 50% of all of the deaths due to other infectious diseases that we were seeing across the population. Now, although measles has primarily disappeared from the most highly developed countries, obviously with the exception now we're seeing outbreaks in the United States because of vaccine refusal, 
But where this is particularly relevant today is in developing countries where vaccination levels are low enough that there's really still endemic measles, meaning that measles is still transmitting year to year throughout the population at some basal level. And we know that these effects might be even more profound there where non-measles infectious diseases, whether they be pneumococcal pneumonia or staph aureus infections or haemophilus influenza, these sort of bacterial infections are really much more prevalent. The overall impact of erasing a child's immune response by getting measles, preventing that with vaccination might really offer a much more profound benefit to that population to increase herd immunity against all of these other pathogens that are sort of in the environment infecting and killing children. Wow, so getting vaccinated against measles helps maintain herd immunity against other infectious diseases? Absolutely. So if we assume that what we show is true, then essentially one of the big consequences of measles infections moving through a population would be that it effectively reduces the amount of herd immunity that the population has gained against all the other infections. So by getting rid of measles through vaccination, not only are we improving the herd immunity directly with regard to measles, but we're also potentially improving herd immunity to all of those other infections that our investigation suggests are occurring as a result of the immunologic sequelae of measles. And one argument that anti-vaccine proponents often make is that measles isn't life-threatening. What's wrong with that statement, Michael? Well, first and foremost, measles is life-threatening. Prior to vaccination, it used to cause a tremendous amount of both disease and death. So on the one hand, the statement is just false, although we hear it very often. And then what this study shows is that the effects that we aren't measuring day to day, meaning how is measles increasing deaths when you take into account the immunologic secondary effects of the virus, it becomes really a very devastating infection. Prior to vaccination, measles was the single largest cause of mortality globally. And still today, it's killing around 145,000 individuals. So essentially, our findings really just add to the very well-supported evidence that measles vaccination has been one of the best buys in public health in general to reduce mortality, both from direct measles mortality as well as from all of these other secondary infections that we're measuring in our investigation. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Michael. Absolutely. This has been a great pleasure talking with you. Michael Minna and colleagues write about the long-term immunosuppressive effects of the measles virus this week in Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at triplas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.